I'm Liz Corey. And I'm Katie King. And this is True Crime New England. England. What's up, everybody? Hello, welcome back. We are so glad to see you. You look great today, audience member. Your smile's beautiful. Did you get your teeth whitened? <laughs> Did you get a haircut? Oh my gosh. <laughs> You're so funny, Just not just one haircut, all your hair's cut. That's funny. That's really funny. Thank you so much for joining us today. Sweet, sweet listener. <laughs> it's been quite some time since you and I recorded, Katie. Yeah. We've had a little break. You took a nice vacay. Mm-hmm. Sounded like it was a good time. And uh, we've just been going, we've been doing a lot of things. So good to see you. Good to see you. You look fantastic. Oh, thank you. You look even better. Oh, stop. You're glowing. Oh, stop. Thank you. <laughs> now would be a good time to tell you that I am, pr- no, just kidding. Isn't that what pe- you know, people used to say? Yeah, oh, you're, so you're glowing. And they're like, uh, um, uh, no reason. Yeah, just, yeah. <laughs> it's all good. I'm not actually pregnant. But anyway, guys, today we want to just talk real quick about our next charity that we're going to donate to. Yes. Um, Katie, great idea again with Thank the you. charities. Um, as far as the counts go, where this will be episode four in our um, 10 episode stretch. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you, so far, things, there's been a twist in the the counting. And um, for two episodes in a row, Katie has had more swears than me. Just saying. I know. And it's, (laughs) it's always at the end too, because Uh I'm getting so fired up and Mm -hmm. I'm like, just going off Mm -hmm. and I'm so mad and I'm dropping F-bombs. And then I re-listen. I'm like, Wait a second. <laughs> Wait, hold on. <laughs> did I say more than Liz? Yep. Oh, you yeah, took you the lead, though. That first episode oh, of this next my. batch, you got a good lead on me. Like, so we're, we're so embarrassingly good. Funny. Yeah. I think I was compensating for the next two episodes there, where I would see, be drastically less. You foresaw the future. But anyway, guys, we're so excited. Katie, do you want to tell everyone what we're going to be donating into this time. Sure. So ideally, we were thinking something along the lines of true crime. Of course. And perhaps would be cool if it was in New England. Huh. So we will be donating the proceeds of our F-word money <laughs> for this next batch of 10 episodes to the New England Innocence Project. I am so excited. I think that's such a good idea. Like, I love that there's one for all of New England as mm-hmm. a whole. It's amazing. That is so sweet. And what a great cause, regardless, for any state, for all of America, for any country. Like, that's awesome. They do some really good shit. I mean, we've talked about them before from our episode where we covered James Tillman. Mm-hmm. Um, he was helped by the Innocence Project. He mm-hmm. was wrongfully convicted. So, yeah, we thought they'd be a good, well-deserving organization for some funds absolutely and we were just checking out their website doing a little browsing and man there is the statistics they have up on their website is insane and really eye-opening and they have um a project going on right now called end life without parole which you know the goal is to offer life you know with parole after 25 years doesn't mean obviously that they're going to get granted parole but it offers that um that opportunity for inmates who maybe are not there for violent crimes Mm -hmm. or you know it allows them to actually be rehabilitated and they had some awesome statistic that was like only 38 percent of people who have been let go on 
parole have convicted another serious crime, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also saves so much money per inmate, like over $121,000 per inmate to That's offer crazy. that. That's crazy. Right? That's so crazy. Yep. Um, so they are a nonprofit organization. They work to correct and prevent wrongful convictions. Um, they provide inmates with pro bono lawyers and services. And they also do a lot of really good, important things with different people who have been wrongfully convicted. And race was a huge factor in that. Oh, yeah. Um, they have a lot of really great statistics on the wrongful incarceration of especially black men. That's yes. a huge statistic. Yeah. Um, another fabulous thing that they do. So the Innocence Project as a whole, I mean, we talked about this with our episode, but mm-hmm. it's definitely worth sharing again. Yeah. They have been responsible for exonerating 375 innocent people through DNA testing. Over the country. Over the country. Yeah. 120 of those have been from New England. That's awesome. So. And I know people might be like, well, that's because it's six states. But if you think about it, California, Texas, those Florida. New York. Yeah. Big, big states with very high prison populations Mm -hmm. um, that would, you know cover much more than New England. So I think that's a very important statistic and shows how important this project is. It's awesome. Yeah, and I mean, we've talked about it before. New England is not considered a very diverse area. No. So it's really disturbing that with such smaller populations of minorities that they are being wrongfully convicted or convicted period right at such a high rate i know so this organization is awesome and they deserve some cash money oh 100 percent. and boy are we gonna give it to them we already got some funds (laughs) rolling in for them yeah oh oh yeah i don't know how i'm gonna be able to afford this over and over again i know i gotta we do a good job I'm going to need to pick up a second gig or something because, man. <laughs> a little side hustle. Yeah, literally. <laughs> if you guys want to donate to us. Do- no, no, just, just kidding. kidding. <laughs> just kidding for now. Yeah, for, we'll get back to you when yeah. we get the total for this next <laughs> batch of 10. Honestly, honestly. Oh, man. But anyway, so just keep, keep track with us if you want. See where we're at. And uh, maybe if you want, donate yourself. You know, I think that's always an option and it's it all, I know always when I donate to charities, which, you know, I wish I donated more. Um, it's not something you think about just in your day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. Um, it's always a good idea to donate. So if you guys are able to, even $5, that's a great idea. I would say definitely go for it for whatever organization. You really can't go wrong. Yeah, I mean, this is the third one that we've done kind of a fundraiser for. Mm-hmm. Our previous one was Bridget's House of Hope. Yeah. Um, they're going to be the first house the first organization to house human trafficking victims in the state of new hampshire right the previous donation that we did was for the trevor project right um following an episode we did where a man was murdered because he was gay Mm -hmm. so yeah i mean if you feel like donating to any of those all of those oh what a good person you are nudge nudge (laughs) oh Tax day just passed. I know some oh, of us sure got our refunds back. Cha-ching. Woot <laughs> Donate to a good cause. Yay. No, just kidding. You don't, yeah. you don't have yeah, to. You actually have to, but... Would be nice. It's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> so, we're excited, and we'll mm-hmm. definitely keep you guys posted on those totals. Oh, yeah. Stay tuned. Well, on another note, today's episode 
interesting. It's a good one. It's I feel like one. it's a very classic New England case. It is, and it's old-timey. Mm-hmm. Little historic. It takes place in 1935. We're throwing it back. Yeah, and not in the sexy way. <laughs> that was terrible. That was so eighth grade of me. That was really bad. Did that bring you back? Like it brought me back? Throwback. <laughs> Literally. Ugh. That's funny. But anywho, um, it's very interesting today, and um, we're coming to you from Vermont. I think it's a puzzling case. Yes, and it's still unsolved. Yep, 87 years later. Mm-hmm. Something crazy. I don't know if I did my math right, guys. A long time. A long, long <laughs> Whatever time. it is, it's a long time. Many, I can't do math either. <laughs> many years. Yep. So definitely stick around. Take a listen to this because it's a good one. And without further ado... We will be covering the The East Middlebury Does. All right, so let's get into it. And we're just going to give our sources. Katie, would you mind going ahead? Sure. I have Unsolved Vermont, VPR.org the Burlington Free Press, and then the Sun Community News. Mm, Nice. I also had Burlington Free Press. Um, Newspapers.com was a great resource, um, especially because, you know, newspaper was such a large way to communicate back then. Um, So I was able to find several articles that were posted literally in 1935. There's such a cool website. Because it shows you, if you guys aren't familiar, it shows you literally digital versions of the exact newspapers that came out back then yeah like scanned in so cool. it is really cool um also i had some community news i had a blog that was called count every mystery um i used a small thread from reddit and i also used unsolved vermont cool yeah so let's start talking about these east middlebury does katie would you mind Relaying the events of May 15th, 1935. Let's set the scene. The world is black and white. (laughs) Birds are chirping in the distance and children are laughing in the, in the foreground. I don't know. Love it. Right. Is that, is that some 1935? Sure. Great. It's a Wednesday. Those happened back then. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes. They had calendars of some sort. (laughs) Not the iPhone app calendar, oh, but you know. <laughs> slam. Mary Daig and her 18-year-old daughter, Inez Perry, were picking Mayflowers on the side of an old logging road in East Middlebury, Vermont. I can see it now. Flowers are blooming. It's the middle of May. Oh. It's so nice out. They're Dresses. lifting up their petticoats. Oh. Nobody's around. They can show their ankles. Yes. Oh, what a time. <laughs> what a time to be alive. Oh, my goodness. That's beautiful for them. So 18-year-old Inez, they were walking back with their flowers, and she noticed a pretty sizable white rock. Hmm. So like any child does, you go to kick it. Sure. I know I still walked on. When I'm taking walks around my neighborhood, I'm just like, oh, time to play soccer. 100%. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. And I used to play soccer, so I'm like, woo, Woo! like doing little little stupid moves. Yeah. (laughs) So she did exactly that. She kicked the rock, Mm -hmm. but instead of the rock tumbling and rolling off and being all satisfying sure it turned over in the ground and flipped over yeah. and to her horror it was a skull ah that's terrifying 
you always think like, and this is terrible, but like, what if that happened to me? You know, like you're yeah. walking, taking a, you know, stroll, like a hike or searching for Mayflowers as we often do. And um, you kick a rock just because why the fuck not? And it's a fucking skull. I would die. Yeah. Terrifying. So she's probably screaming. <laughs> yeah. And the worst part is, and we were trying to figure this out, because um, we both wrote down, like, oh, they went to call the police. I don't know if they called the police on, like, a telephone, but at the very least, they contacted them via whether it was running to go get a police officer, um, accessing someone who did have a phone to call the police station. However they did it, they did contact the police. And to their horror, that skull was not the only skull that was there. Inez and Mary actually had found themselves on a dumping ground for a horrible, horrible crime. So they alerted somehow. <laughs> Maybe a neighbor heard her screaming sure. and ran to, I don't know. Who knows? But anyway, Middlebury Sheriff Ralph G. Sweet came along to the scene with Addison County State's Attorney John T. Conley and several residents. Of course. Um, they are all searching the area to mm-hmm. find more remains. Yeah. Um, they obviously found the skull. They're trying to see if they could find more remains, figure out who these people are. Mm-hmm. They found the remains of three people in total. Oh, that is so awful. And you know what's the worst part is that they were only 18 inches from the side of the road. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's a foot and a half. Um, and it took, and we'll talk about it later, but they were not there for just a few days. They were completely skeletonized. So they had been there for quite some time. Mm-hmm. And they were 18 inches from the side of the road. And the skull that Inez kicked was white, which means that it was somewhat exposed to the sun for a very long time for it to be bleached like that. Yeah. Oh, that's so sad. Um, and the worst part for me, and you hear about this a lot when you're listening to podcasts or watching old doc- you know, documentaries about an old crime, um, back then and up until even like the 70s, really maybe even the 80s, crime scenes were contaminated all the time. Because mm-hmm. you know who was here? You said it. The the state attorney, the sheriff, and then a whole bunch of other people. Investigators, um, looky-loos. Residents, yeah. Residents. They were like, what's going on? Yeah. <laughs> they stomped all over the crime scene. Touched things. I don't know if... It- yeah, they're like, say, what's over there? Yeah. Hey, a now. bone? Yeah. You and remains? Let me... Hold on. Sheriff, I'm just going to hold it up for you real quick. Um, and so you can look at it and kind of identify. Oh, there's some dirt. On- hold on. Let me sc- scrub some <laughs> yeah. dirt off of that. Let me sneeze on the crime yeah, scene. Right. Let me spit my tobacco out on the crime scene. Like, give Literally, me a fucking break. Cigarettes yeah. And- yeah. That's ridiculous. And unfortunately, that's exactly what happened here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was already not a whole bunch of evidence. So I think that in this case, it wasn't devastating but it happened a lot and that was you know the, their first call would be to like a journalist mm-hmm. um, versus like a police officer back in those days yeah and back in the day journalists would accompany police to the crime scene absolutely so they're in there pushing police out of the way like mm-hmm. i gotta get my picture my for angle. the newspaper with my oversized polaroid camera <laughs> exactly like, give me a break yeah isn't that terrible um Luckily, what was very obvious from the skeletons and the skulls was that each 
individual had been killed with one gunshot wound to the temple, essentially. Um, so then it kind of brought the question, one, who are these people? Two, who killed them? Three, why? Why would someone kill these people? Execution style, that's personal. Mm-hmm. That's very personal. So there were a lot of questions um, around this accidental discovery from an 18-year-old who was just bored walking on the side of a road with her mom. Mm-hmm. Crazy stuff. So they're searching the crime scene. Um, it appears as though the bodies could have been wrapped in a blanket as well as a nearby striped awning that was found. Mm-hmm. Um, it's believed that the victims could have been killed anywhere from about one to five years before their remains were found. Yeah. That's a huge gap in time, first of all. Yeah. Authorities found the remains, immediately classified the case as a homicide. Right. I mean, there's a picture up on the website. Yes. One of the skulls very clearly has a bullet wound <laughs> in the side of it, a bullet hole, a gaping hole. Yeah. Doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out they were shot in the head. Mm-hmm. It's a very round hole. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The bodies were discovered under a thin layer of leaves and pine needles, and they were also tightly bound in an army-style duffel bag. Mm -mm. A small tree root had actually grown over the leg of one of the skeletons. That's so awful. Mm -hmm. So that proves that there has been some time passing by if a tree root can grow around some leg bones. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's terrible. Um, They also found a lot of small things with the does, um, including um, pillow feathers, which indicated to them that perhaps these three people were killed um, while they were sleeping and there was like a pillow placed before the gun so it would muffle the sound. Um, Also, they were discovering um, pearl buttons um, and like parts of like a silk pajama kind of outfit um with their remains which would kind of you know indicate again further that they were sleeping um they had also found several bunches of matted hair um some of it was blonde and kind of auburn and then um they also found the corner like of a wool blanket and then like you said that disintegrated remain of a black and green awning Mm -hmm. so that was very peculiar um most interestingly, they also found a flattened 38 caliber copper jacketed bullet. And it was actually found under one of the skulls, which is sad and scary. Um, and this was consistent with a gun called a Colt Automatic. Um, as you and I know, Katie, because we're wicked gun experts. We're gun fans. We go to all the gun shows. Um, I'm, I'm looking at your wall of guns right now, Yes, Liz. I have three muskets. From the Civil War that I got off of eBay, um, two uh, uh, two pis- pistols um, made of silver, and then <laughs> that one of them was used by um, John Hamm in a movie once. And then I also have seventeen different bullets in display mm-hmm. cases that I have collected from the street. <laughs> We won't talk about your collection of AKs. That's for another day. Oh, that is... I like to keep that between me and my my god. So. So we all... Yeah, that's not real. That, if anyone thought that this was like their first episode, they're trying to get a feel of who we are, the opposite of that. Liz doesn't 
Liz isn't a god person. Oh, well, the god part is also a big part of it, but the guns. No, you have guns. Oh, you're no. an atheist. Oh. <laughs> right, yes, right. We don't have guns Sorry, in this room. I, don't. <laughs> I do have swords, though. Just kidding. <laughs> anyway, what were we talking about? Oh, the Colt Automatic. So that was that was found, um, and that's what they thought maybe that thirty-eight caliber bullet came from. Oh, I did have an interesting fact. So you know how you mentioned that tree root? Mm-hmm. I read this part of one of these articles that said there was a man named William Adams, and he was a self-proclaimed tree expert. Is that not sexy? <laughs> Listen, oh. what do I have to do to proclaim myself as a tree expert? You know, well, to be fair, he did graduate from the University of Vermont. Did he study treeology? Not sure. But he was a tree expert. So they consulted him, of course. And they said, you know, tell me about this tree root. How big is it? Like, what does this mean in terms of time? And basically he claimed that when he examined the tree root, he believed that the roots were anywhere from 10 to 20 years old. Now, before you get excited, because I was like, oh, this is good. Um, you know, the lead officers were like, hmm, maybe that the root that they had collected after they had removed the bodies was the wrong root um, because so many people had gone to the crime scene and messed stuff up. Um, and then it also kind of seemed that the bodies had not been there for 20 years. That seemed it, not reasonable. So they kind of threw that theory away. But I thought it was interesting because it got me like kind of excited. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like it was a dud. Dud tree expert, unfortunately. Damn. I know. He needs to go back to school. Yeah, he does. <laughs> yeah, he does. Get it together. Come on, William Adams. I really liked you. <laughs> um, so that same evening that the bodies were discovered, Sheriff Sweet had returned back to the scene of the crime with the regional medical examiner, Dr. Lewell S. Walker. Mm-hmm. Dr. Lewell had reported that he wasn't able to immediately determine the exact gender or age of the victims. Mm-hmm. He did say they were shot through the head. Right. Which, great work. Good, good job. <laughs> a civilian off the street was like, oh, that, those look like gunshots. Yeah, right. So, perfect. We've determined the cause of death. Great. We got to determine everything else. Right. <laughs> so, it was later estimated that the three bodies were of a woman and two children. Yeah. They're trying to figure out if these were the women's two children I think that's a fair assumption. Yeah, and I think, you know, back then they kind of, because of the lack of ability to process DNA and all this stuff, they probably just decided it and went with it. But I think even today, 87 years later, it's a pretty mm-hmm. fair guess. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Um, they estimated that the woman was between the ages of about 35 to 45. Mm-hmm. She was about 5 foot 2 inches in height. They determined that one of the children was a little bit older, Mm. maybe about 13 to 15 years old. That's a rough guess. Mm. And the younger child was likely 9 to 11 years old. Mm. It was at first decided that they were both boys. Um, There's still a lot of debate on this. Some older sources refer to the children as two girls Mm -hmm. or a boy and a girl. As of right now, the Name Us anonymous persons database refers to their sexes as unknown. Yeah. Just to be safe. Um, nothing has really been determined, determined, Mm -hmm. but, you know, we'll get into that. Right, right. Um, So I think that's pretty sad, and, you know, people, when they started to realize, like, oh, this is a mom and her two children, most likely, where's the dad, you know, did he do it? Mm -hmm. That was kind of what it sounded like, especially because they were 
seemed to be like they were probably asleep when it happened. They were in their pajamas. There was silk pajama pieces and there was feathers from a pillow. It's kind of leaning in that direction, right? So, and then of course, they get that kind of information just from context clues. And then there's not a whole lot to go on with the skeletons other than, of course, the gunshot wound. And then they kind of looked into another aspect, which was the dental work on two of the victims. So the mother and one of the children. I believe it was the older child. Um, So they discovered that the older child had extensive dental work in the mouth, including a gold band encircling the entire set of teeth in the upper jaw with something called an angles ribbon. Um, To me, that sounds like early days braces, Mm -hmm. like a really early day brace kind of thing for your teeth. Um, back then, it seems as though that would have cost roughly $1,500, mm-hmm. which, don't you worry, guys, I did the math. In 2022, that would be about $31,500. Holy shit. That's a lot of money. Isn't that an insane amount of money? Is that how much dental work costs these days? I know it's crazy expensive. Yeah. I think my, I don't even know how much my braces Oh, I, I don't want to know how much they cost. I can't remember. <laughs> My poor parents. I don't know how much it cost them, but yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Isn't that insane? So obviously they were thinking, is this a family who comes from wealth? Yeah. Right? Um, so naturally, in an attempt to identify the victims, the police were like, hmm, we need to search out some uh, experienced dentists around here. And try and find out. Maybe they could find the identity of someone who put the braces in or remembered such an expensive job of, you know, correcting teeth, whatever. So the first journey that these skulls took were to Harvard. Harvard Dental School uh, in Boston, of course. And they were examined by a man named Dr. Alfred Rogers. Rogers was a dentist and he actually get this he specialized in treating quote irregularities of the teeth hot right sounds good yeah right he initially promised to find the dentist responsible for this brace work and the teeth and he was gonna find him he was yeah he he did not um so he actually did discover that the Braces were manufactured by a company called the S.B. White Company, which was out of Boston. So that was like, okay, okay. And then it was speculated that if this was the same kind of brace, um, there had not been more than five or six dozen um, distributed annually in New England. So it seemed as though this was a relatively rare kind of brace. Mm -hmm. So they were like, okay, maybe we're narrowing it down just a, a bit. Just a little bit from everyone in the world. Um, The style and method of braces had actually only been used for just about 20 years. So that also kind of put in, okay, so that tree root thing with the could be up to 20 years, definitely not it. Sorry, William. You're sexy, but you have not great knowledge (laughs) of tree roots. And um, so that kind of cleared a little bit up. Like, okay, we're on to something, right? Well. 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 (laughs) Well. Right, but 
Um, ultimately, Dr. Rogers did conclude that there really wasn't like a specific set of skills that was required to perform that kind of dental work. Maybe the um, materials used was more expensive, but um, he said that it could have really been done at any dental clinic. And that even included dental offices that provided to the less fortunate. So while they kind of zeroed in on the manufacturer and the type of braces, it didn't really designate a certain wealth class for this family. Mm -hmm. So it kind of ended up in a dead end a little bit. Um, They also were sent to um, New York, the Skulls, to try and get some uh, dental work identification type um, investigating so lastly, it was believed that um, a dentist out of New York had seen the circulating like news um, through the papers, because obviously this wasn't just a local story. This was pretty big. And um, he had thought that maybe he performed the dental work on that child, but it never panned out. So that kind of was an- another dead end. Mm-hmm. And then that kind of left the police looking at the awning that they were wrapped in. Mm-hmm. And they were like, okay, what kind of awning, you know? They discovered and they determined, which is great police work, that it was probably from a storefront or a yacht or like a porch. So like, you know, where awnings are. <laughs> mm-hmm. I can't. Yeah. I can't. You can't make this shit up. Yeah. So that was really top notch back then. Um, oh, man. Unfortunately, that didn't pan, pan out either. Mm-mm. No. So they were like, great. How are we going to identify these people? Right. Mm-hmm. It seems like after they kept hitting wall after wall after wall, mm-hmm. they kind of started to shift gears right. and figure out, okay, we don't know who these people are. Mm-hmm. What about the person who did this? Right. So they narrowed it down to three people that mm-hmm. they named in the investigation as persons of interest. Um, was it successful? No. No. <laughs> what? But here are the people that they named okay. and why. Great. So the first person of interest was a man named R.R. R. Ludding from Buffalo, New York. Mm. He was actually staying at the Middlebury Hotel. Police said that he showed, quote, great interest in finding the skeletons. Okay. And they thought it was suspicious because he was like in the woods at the crack of uh-huh. dawn. Like, what did you guys find today? What else is going on? What else? They thought... He could have done it because he was, like, so obsessed with the investigation. He was apparently following mm-hmm. investigators from Middlebury to Burlington in a car with Indiana license plates. Yeah. And they were like, where'd this car come from? Right. You're supposed to be from Buffalo. What are you not telling oh, us? Okay, fair. So police were asked to keep a lookout for him and kind of keep an eye on his whereabouts. Mm-hmm. It turned out he was just, like, a future true crime obsessed person yeah he was a murderino essentially (laughs) he was a murderino if they had true crime documentaries back then he would have been all over him Uh uh-huh he was just a little too excited about him staying in the area coincidentally at the time there was an active murder investigation right so he saw his opportunity and he was like i gotta get in on this i gotta this is very interesting yeah Yeah, this is so crazy so that didn't pan out no so they crossed him off the list (laughs) oh my god that's so funny Um, the next guy they named, he is automatically a little bit more suspicious to me because he goes by two different names. (laughs) Yes, that's like a red flag. For sure. Yeah. So, 
He went by the name Irving and or Arthur Denton. Someone told detectives, like, hey, I think you should look into this mm-hmm. guy, Irving slash Arthur. Which, can I just point out, those are the names you're going to choose? Right. Really? <laughs> one of them is probably your real name, and then the other one. So which, Irving, and then you chose Arthur? Or Arthur, and then you chose Irving? Or maybe one is the middle name, and oh. he's just trying to be sneaky. I don't know. But he had just appeared mm. in Vermont <laughs> in August of 1931. Mm-hmm. He was spending money left, right, and center. Mm. Buying expensive items, a Ford vehicle, mm-hmm. a property on Starksboro Road, paying for them in cash. Right. Was it unheard of? No. But he immediately got the attention of the people in the town. Because right. they were like, who is this hotshot? Like, mm-hmm. what is his problem? Yeah. He buys his property, whitewashes all the windows, blackens out all the lights, threatens neighbors, Stay away. Don't come near me. Don't ring my doorbell. Don't knock on my door. Don't talk to me. Yeah. Pretend like I'm not here. Stay away from me. Just a little weird. How? That's like the opposite of being subtle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Stay away. Lighten the windows. Blacken the lights. He just doesn't want to be seen. That's weird. Mm-hmm. Jesus. Um, in February of 1932, apparently he left town rather abruptly. Mm-hmm. He ordered the sale of his property with the money going to a Pacific National Bank in Seattle, Washington. Hmm. The neighbor living closest to the crime scene at the time stated that in 1932, right before Denton left town, there was an odor of, they described it as decaying flesh. Hmm. And they said it came from the woods, but no one could really pinpoint what was causing it or where. Right. So that timeline was a little suspicious, too. Yeah, that is a little suspicious. Definitely more likely than our first guy. Mm-hmm. I like him as a suspect, but I like this third guy a lot better. I feel like this one is like, okay. Yeah, this one <laughs> makes more sense right. to the police. A man named Harold Young became another person of interest after this Denton character left town. Mm -hmm. He came to Burlington, Vermont in 1929. He ran a store on the corner of Monroe and Champlain. It was part of the Grand Union Tea Company. People immediately took one look at him and they were like, okay, you're suspicious. Are you a bootlegger? Mm -hmm. Are you selling moonshine? Are you using the store's front of some kind? And his friends also came forward after and said that he owned a 38 caliber Colt pistol, Ugh. which was the same gun, as we talked about, yep. that would have shot the bullets used to kill the victims. Right. A man named John Dayette owned the building where the store was located. Mm-hmm. He said that Harold received a notice that his wife and their child, an 11-year-old girl, mm-hmm. would be joining him in Burlington. Mm-hmm. So the woman and the child come, they meet up. Oh, I haven't seen you in so long. Wow, (laughs) family reunion. Happy family. (laughs) Soon after they arrived, Harold left with them. He took them somewhere. Mm -hmm. Comes back a few days later. (laughs) Harold, where's your wife and uh, daughter? He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, what? He's like, uh, you mean the weather today? It's oh. gorgeous outside. Don't ask me about my family ever again. It's none of your business. Don't talk to me about them. Mm. Weird. He then left the area soon after and wasn't heard from again. Hmm. And if you guys will remember, one of the victims, they estimated to be 9 to 11 years old. And then, of course, the mom was, you know, an adult woman. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't directly determine the gender of both children 
So it is possible that one of the skeletons, the younger one, could have been a girl. That's why I like this one, mm-hmm. this guy, because it sounds more plausible. Mm-hmm. Like, they started off with really, they were like, oh, maybe it's this guy. He likes skeletons. And it's like, okay, no, keep trying. And then they go and they're like, this guy, he just came, didn't like his neighbors, and then he left weird. Okay, weird, not a good guy, but keep keep going, keep trying. And then this was their third try, and they're like, great, good work, guys. Seems more realistic. Mm-hmm. You're getting the hang of it. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, nothing panned out. Right. At all. This led, you know, to some dead ends in the case, of course. And then eventually these detectives that were working the case were like, all right, well, what if we try and identify the victims? Again. Again. <laughs> New idea. Let's identify the victims. Right. And so... In 1938, this was three years after the discovery, um, a detective named Almo Franzoni claimed that he, in fact, had identified the victims. He was so sure of it. He really was. He was positive. (laughs) And you know what? I liked where his head was at. For sure. For a little while. Until it was like, oh, shit, sorry, buddy. You had a good, you were doing good, but it, mm. Yeah. (laughs) So he believed that the victims were... Cora Golden and her two children. So his big thing to start off was that he could not find any record of the family after the year 1929, um, which would fall in the three to five year, well, one to five year time span that they gave this potential murder. Yes. Okay. All right. Um, It was reported that Cora and her children reportedly disappeared in 1923. Okay. Which would have been 11 years before the discovery, which technically speaking does line up with the timeline of their ages. Mm-hmm. The very little one would have had to have been a baby when they left. Um, Cora would have been 31 at this time with her children, uh, Charles Jr. being seven and her daughter, Beulah, being four. And if Cora and her kids were killed seven years after they disappeared, their ages would line up exactly with what was estimated. So they were like, cool. We did it, guys. We're done. Calling it. Good night. Until um, April of 1938 when Franzoni found the daughter, Beulah, living with an adoptive family in Connecticut. So it was like, oh, shucks. But then, hold on, everyone. Franzoni discovered that Cora actually had another child. His name was Francis. And she had actually had this child, a boy, with a farmhand named Joseph Carter in 1924. This lined up with the ages of the potential children as well. Um, and also the fact that they were both male skeletons, which seemed to be kind of what everyone was leaning towards in terms of gender of the two children. Mm-hmm. So they were like, hmm, okay. Unfortunately, yeah, <laughs> yeah many, many moons later... Um, an archivist discovered that Cora had ar- actually died in 1938, which is ironic because that's when he started to think about them being the family, and that Joseph, Charles, and the second son, Francis, had all moved back to Vermont and were, at the time you know, of the discovery, were alive and well. Um, and additionally, DNA analysis of a living relative of Beulah, because she was known, she was adopted, um, they took 
the DNA of one of her, I don't know if it was her children or grandchildren, um, and tested it against the victim's DNA and it didn't match. So, yeah. That sucked because that was the first actually legitimate lead that got the ball rolling, mm-hmm. you know, things are moving. Mm-hmm. Okay, we found out this, it wasn't that, but it could be this, oh, and it looked child. really good. Mm-hmm. No. Nope. And nope. then that was it. Everyone's hopes came crashing down. Yep. So the state of Vermont, along with a detective from the state police, have searched tons of records for any information on the identities of the skeletons. There have been no new leads. Yeah. One of the more famous images from this case, I think it's so scary to it look is. at. It's really haunting. It is. <laughs> um, it's an image generated by facial reconstructive technology. We've talked about this technology before. Yes, we have. Um, with one of our cases, Baby Doe. Yes. They used it to figure out who she could be. Mm-hmm. So it's a pretty popular piece of technology it's utilized by the national center for missing and exploited children Mm -hmm. one of the forensic imaging specialists his name is joe mullins Mm -hmm. he was the one that created pictures of the two of the skulls to try to give them faces Mm -hmm. in hopes that someone would remember something Mm -hmm. or at least he could figure out what they could be (laughs) he actually used clay to make sculptures of what they could have looked like which i think is so interesting yeah but it's also really scary (laughs) just like the eyes, I think, if you look uh-huh. up the pictures. They'll be on our Instagram and our website and stuff, too. But, They're um, beady. Beady eyes. They are beady. Yeah. They are. It's, <laughs> it's scary. It's creepy. It's so cool to me, though, that you can look at a skull and determine where their eyes would sit on their face, what right. shape they would be. Their cheekbones. And, yes. Yeah, it's yep. crazy. The shape of their noses. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so fascinating. It is really cool. You have to be a genius, I think, to figure this out. So he's pretty up there. Very talented, yes. He stated in an interview, what you end up with is this very lifelike clay sculpture of what this person's face could have looked like. Everybody's skull is just as unique as your face. If you have 10 skulls of 10 individuals lined up on a table, an anthropologist can tell you attached or detached earlobes, Mm -hmm. the projection of your nose, the thickness of your lips, your hairline, where your eyelids attach, where your eyebrows are. All of the information about you that makes you the individual that you are is etched into your skull. Oh, that gave me chills. Isn't that crazy? Yes. So he has been working on this, trying to figure out who these people are. Mm -hmm. I mean, this case was brought to his attention and he was like, hold on, let me get my clay out. (laughs) Yep. Hold, hold, please. Send me pictures of these skulls. Mm -hmm. Hold on. (laughs) I'm getting to work. I'm getting my hands dirty. Yeah. So that was really the most modern effort to this day of trying to identify who these people are. Yeah. No leads. Right. Still. <laughs> still a cold case. Yeah. Um, but people have hope. Yeah. You know, it's always worth talking about. It's always worth trying to figure this out. Yeah. I would agree with you, even though it's been 87 years. Mm-hmm. Um, is it likely that anyone from that time is alive? Um, less likely, mm-hmm. but possible. And just sad. A lot of sad, um, sad things about this case. And mm-hmm. especially that they were children and I know. a mom. All three victims have been buried in a Middlebury cemetery under a headstone carved with three souls known only to God. That's sad. 
Anyone with any information about this case or the identities of the victims is asked to please contact the Middlebury Police Department. Their phone number is 802-388-3191. Awesome. There are these two researchers, Roxana Amillo and Kathy Brandy. They've been doing their own kind of independent research on this case. They would love to talk to anybody who is a long-term resident of Addison County, Vermont, who may know about the 1935 unsolved murders. Mm. They're looking for stories that may have circulated in the years following. Um, Word of mouth travels, gossip, people tell stories. People pass down stories through families, Mm -hmm. newspapers, journals, diaries, anything. You can contact Roxana at 802-349-9837 or Kathy at 802-453-7021. Wow. Yeah. Good for them for doing that. That's definitely not a hard case to really dig deep into, but they have a good point. You know, what if someone was like a child back then and heard something or knew something and never forgot? It's possible. Mm -hmm. Definitely possible. Yep. So that's a crazy case, and I hate that it's still not solved. I feel for that mom and her kids, but man, what a crazy thing. Yeah. So you guys can tell us what you think about this case on our Instagram or our Twitter at TrueCrimeNE. All lowercase. Or you can even send us an email telling us what you think at our email address, which would be TrueCrimeNE at gmail.com. We also have a website, TrueCrimeNE.com. You can head to our page where we ask for submissions and you can write us in stuff. Your thoughts on this case, your thoughts on other cases we've done, Mm. your hopes and dreams for cases that we should cover in the future. Yes. Send us those. Please. Please. And the best part, you can be anonymous. Yes, that's right. We have a handy dandy feature where you don't have to give your identity if you don't want to. Great. We'd love to hear from you either way. We really would. And another reminder to just rate and review. If you like our podcast, then the rates and the reviews definitely help get these stories out there. You can rate and leave a review on Apple Podcasts and you can leave a rate on Spotify. Yes, please. It would really help out the podcast. It sure would. And uh, we appreciate you guys every time. So thank you. And with that, we'll see you next week. Bye. Goodbye.